From the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year celebration of The Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. There'll be no door for men. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Manu Power is Rising. <laughs> Wait, no, sorry. A new power is rising. <laughs> Our 12th episode on The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. I like to call this the intermission halfway through the movie as we touch base with a lot of our big power players before plunging ahead towards this film's final act. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. As I said up top, I like to call this set of scenes the two-tower intermission. All three movies have a clear halfway point marker, but only in the two towers do we do a pullout on everything going on and check in with everyone in Middle-earth, give some exposition, and allow for a bathroom break if you need it. I kind of just want to talk about going to the movies today and find out more about Emily's relationship with going to the theater. It's an ever-changing experience and has ebbed and flowed with the times from the streaming revolution to COVID. You want to go first? What's your general thoughts on going to the movies and your history with going to the movies growing up and even now? Oh, uh, yeah. So this one's kind of fun because um, because I grew up overseas um, in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, we didn't have... Uh, we didn't have access to a lot of, like, two movie theaters generally, uh, except, I think, uh, Bahrain, Manama, there was one, uh, and that's where I saw, I think Harry Potter 3, 2 or 3, <laughs> saw that there, um, and then I think, no, Morocco didn't even get one until after I moved away, uh, yeah, so I, I didn't really grow up, uh, going to movie theaters, it wasn't until I was... Uh, nine or ten years old, I think, that I lived in a country that had uh, a lot of movie theaters, uh, and that was that was the UK. That was I was living in London then, and so it was all really shit British movie theaters. Uh, not that there's like a British movie theater type, but it's just like the Brits don't do the same level of decadence that the Americans do. So like the 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 like seats in the theater are kind of more akin to like old style theater theater seats so they're a bit like rickety and a bit shit i I remember it being like a really big innovation when they finally got ben and jerry's in the view near us uh but like other than that it would be like you know you'd go into your movie and if it were like a quiet movie because there was a pub next door and the same shopping center you'd hear like all the guys (laughs) all the lads watching the football or whatever cheering during your like (laughs) quiet moments so like it was definitely a a, a, an experience um i i kind of grew up not really 
being interested in movies per se. Like, we didn't tend to watch movies for the sake of watching movies because watching movies was in itself uh, an interesting activity. Like, I grew up with Harry Potter. Um, so the movies that I went to the movie theater to see, which was a vanishingly rare experience, was Harry Potter. Um, once my mom pulled me out of school <laughs> to take me to see, I think, Harry Potter 3 on opening Aww. day. Yeah, it was great. I was in kindergarten, so it's not like I was missing anything. But, you know, it's <laughs> it's the thought that counts. Um, but by the time I was like kind of able to go to movie theaters really consistently, uh, and I did start going to the movies quite a lot with my dad as kind of like that was our thing mostly because you sit in the dark uh, in silence so you don't end up annoying one another um but by the time I was kind of old enough to do that I was starting to lose my sight um so I was a bit like all right well we tried um but <laughs> yeah my dad and I found out that it was really cheap when we moved back to the US uh, I think AMC used to do like five dollar tickets or something ridiculous like that uh, and so we would go see a lot of movies like every weekend or something like that and it would usually just be like whatever kind of shit was like i I'm not like at the top of the charts necessarily or like breaking you know the 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 uh box office numbers but like whatever thing kind of would make us look more normal to know about because my dad and i have uh what you might call niche interests uh i.e things nobody else cares about and doesn't care to talk uh to us about uh, so we started doing that, and then and then we made the mistake, the horrifying mistake, of going to see The Hobbit uh, in movies in the movie theater, uh, <laughs> and I remember that vividly. Uh, and it was beautiful sunny day at Tyson's Corner Mall for anybody who's familiar with the DC metro area. So like beautiful sunlight shafting through, like all of the rich asshole teenagers walking around with their Auntie Anne's pretzels and their Cinnabons. Just kidding, Cinnabon had already shut down. It was just Auntie Anne's and the great fajita place that I can never remember. And I was so excited to go see The Hobbit. Uh, I think this was actually The Hobbit Part 2, and I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like, it's in the big IMAX movie theater and everything, and went in and sat there and watched the barrel thing, and I came out of that and didn't go back to the movies for, like, a year. Um, and <laughs> it took, like, coaxing <laughs> to get me to go back, and it was really through Star Wars, uh, through The Force Awakens, and then latterly Rogue One. Uh, and then now my current partner, Connor, being a massive film nerd, uh, not, not even in, like, the super nerdy way. He's just a guy who likes movies, but I like to bully him about it um, in a way that's just inexplicable to people who aren't terminally online. Uh, but I finally started getting back into that, and then COVID hit. <laughs> and, and then we couldn't do that anymore. Uh, and now we're kind of starting to go back. We've got this great local cinema called... It's like a local indie cinema. Uh, and you must imagine the full kind of force of the 2009 Brooklyn hipsterdom, as I say that. But it's called the DCA. It's the Dundee Contemporary Arts Center. Uh, and uh, it is... Uh, it is is an incredible sort of uh, like stalwart kind of pillar of the community in Dundee. Uh, really great movies, but they do uh, film festivals that are actually accessible to people who are not making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Um, and they do like great horror festivals. Dundad is a really good one. Um, they do kind of a whole bunch of bespoke ones. Like they've been doing a Brian Cox season. Uh, Brian Cox is from Dundee, uh, and they did a Brian Cox season, and then got Brian Cox to come do a Q and A, and they do all the stuff like that and so there's kind of like this element of you know now you know we go to the movies because uh there's always something a bit weird on but it's also like it's kind of the old world experience of it like we go we get our cocktails i get my like old-fashioned dca has the best old fashions of anywhere in the world we sit down we watch some movie that is utterly inexplicable because it's so fucking artsy or whatever or it's just like horror pulpy horror uh that makes you need a diaper uh and then you go out and you have your <laughs> night and that's the like 
theater ritual, uh, and it's not quite the the, the popcorny one it, it used to be before uh, the co- like before the COVID before the pandemic hit. But that's the kind of weird um, uh, milieu to which I got into to watching movies, and I feel like I think compared to a lot of Americans of any age, uh, not having that kind of action three D movie theater first kind of approach to to go into the movies to like literally the jaws and star wars approach to go into the movies i feel like that is a totally alien experience to me and i think probably quite close to what your experience actually was right yeah absolutely um that no thank you for that experience because as someone who's kind of moved around a lot in their childhood and not been in say the u.s or a u.s similar country um, you know, and that throws off release schedules, availability oftentimes. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, so, um, and I, like you said, probably have a very stock history with films. Like anyone who probably was born between like 1975 and like 2004 uh, probably have the same experience as me or born within the United States or the UK or something like that. I've always loved going to the movies. Like I still do, even if I have gripes with, say, the cost <laughs> and what the overall experience is like at this point. If I want to see a movie, I will go see it in theaters, often right away. Um, That's kind of the ideal viewing for me, in no small part, because it corrals my focus in a way my home and my cell phone can't. Uh, I also like the communal aspect of it, which is why I actually enjoy packed opening night experiences. As a child, though, my family, they don't really watch Western movies. Um, They prefer Bollywood movies. And the only Western movies they really liked were like The Godfather and James Bond. And until I was like 11 or 12, um, they wouldn't take me to those. So the only movies we went to as a child were specifically like for me or for like my cousins who are my age. So that would be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Beauty and the Beast, Power Rangers, The Santa Claus Um, And then finally, when I was a little bit older, um, they would allow me to go to see like James Bond movies with them. And my first one was Tomorrow Never Dies, which came out in 1997. So I was 13 by this point. But almost all of these, including Tomorrow Never Dies and Santa Claus, we would go to a local $1 theater. Nice. Back in my youth, before AMC multiplexes gobbled up the field, we still had smaller theaters that basically took movies that had been out for four to six months, and they just kind of kept playing them as newer movies pushed them out of the bigger cine- cineplexes. Holy shit. So, yeah, it was great. I really appreciate it now when a movie costs like $25 <laughs> to go to. <laughs> Uh, around middle school is when I started going to movies with friends and the ones that stand out are Lost World, Can't Hardly Wait, Lethal Weapon 4, Rush Hour, Titanic. God. Uh, they had just built an AMC real close to my parents' suburb with 30 screens, which was absolutely unheard of in 1996. So it took all of five minutes for any one of our parents to just drop us off for a few hours and scoop us up back later. <laughs> and it's also right off the highway. So if it's convenient for them coming back from work and stuff like that. And this continued into high school, where many Friday and Saturday nights, we would just go to the theater and then figure out what, if anything, we wanted to watch. One day, we didn't have any obvious choices, so my buddy jokingly said, let's go watch Mongolia, pointing to Magnolia up on the board, by an unknown at the time, Paul Thomas Anderson. We did not know we were getting into a three-hour movie, and a very, very strange one at that. But... At the same time, that's fun, you know? That's like genuine discovery happening. Like, what is this? Oh. And then afterwards, like, what was that? But it's still just like pure inspiration and discovery in the moment. 
High school is also when I began pre-ordering tickets for the first time, and that, of course, started with the May 1999 release of The Phantom oh, Menace. Oh, Jesus Christ. I actually had to call someone on a phone on a Saturday morning <laughs> because I looked up the time to call the theater that was in the local newspaper saying, if you want Phantom Menace tickets, call at 10 a.m. on whatever. Holy shit. Um, so it's very different than just having a Fandango app or whatever on your phone these days. <laughs> I've already gone over like how much The Two Towers affected me in terms of cinema going. It was the first time I saw a movie on Christmas. It's when I started going on Christmas every year, and it's also the first time I saw a movie multiple times. High school and college is also when I fell in with the Rotten Tomatoes message boards, and that's where I first made my internet marks and found my first community. I can't defend what that site has been this last decade, but it was a fun IMDb alternative back in the day, and that's where I sharpened my ability to analyze films with a bunch of older people posting who were more like tr classically trained in film analysis and critique. And that, you know, spurred me to go see even more movies, especially prestige and Oscar movies, because that kind of still drove the zeitgeist and the discourse before social media. February, I would regularly watch every Oscar movie that would be replayed in theaters, often in double and triple features. I can never forget that day I watched Frost Nixon and then Kate Winslet's The Reader back to back. Holy shit. It was exhilarating stuff. <laughs> and I hate to say it, but I've also basically seen every Marvel, Star Wars, Star Trek, and Harry Potter movie in theaters, though I also try to see every Christopher Nolan, Coen Brothers, Scorsese films when I can. It doesn't always work out, but I try to follow auteurs on top of IP, I guess. Damn. See, I'm really jealous of that. I think, I think, um, I think I've seen every Harry Potter in cinemas except for one, I think. Uh, that came out in 2000. I would have been two years old. There's no way I would have, my parents would have taken me to the cinema for that. So I probably didn't see that one. I definitely saw two uh, and then the rest of them on from there. Um, I'm still bitter as hell that I have not been able to see every single Star Wars in cinema. Um, I've got uh, prequels. No, I have not seen any of the prequels. What am I saying? I have not seen any of the prequels. And to be honest, I might keep it like that. Uh, I've seen the sequels and all of the other auxiliary bullshit and Rogue One. Uh, and uh, I finally got to see Empire in cinema um, in uh, two years ago. It was for the it was for the the 40th anniversary of uh, Empire Strikes Back. And I like I, there's kind of a mystique around going to cinemas, right? Like like there there's such like a mm -hmm. there's a culture, there's a routine. Everybody talks about it, and like no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, whenever you talk about going to the the movie theater, everybody like gets this like oh the good old days affect around them. And I never really understood that mostly because I hadn't grown up going to theaters. And then I went and saw Empire in in the movie theaters uh, in Cambridge, and it was like this one really kind of shitty. Well, it wasn't shitty. It was a nice theater but i think the niceness of it kind of made it shitty because it didn't feel like a movie theater should like it felt like the kind of place where like if something was like spilled in the carpet they would like call in a dry cleaner to fix it which kind of gave it a weird vibe um but when mm -hmm. saw empire and i was like oh holy shit i suddenly get it now like i get why people are so weird and fetishizy about like the movie theaters and like the movie theater as an experience as a thing like movie theaters tm this is why um and it was like one of those game-changing moments and now i'm like i gotta see the rest of the well i've always wanted to see all the original trilogy on uh the big screen but now i'm like dead set on it and i think I, it, it was also the kind of moment for me in which like you know i don't like the marvel movies and i don't really watch them but i think i didn't understand until that point why other people did and i went and saw empire <laughs> on the big screen and the asteroid the, uh, the asteroid belt chase like that that watching that 
on a massive silver screen was like, okay, now I get it. Like, now I get why these Marvels are as popular as they are. I get why people, like, go and watch them. I That was the moment for unlocking it for me. And so even though I haven't, I literally have not seen a Marvel since that came out, it was like, okay, I get what the, like, experience of cinema is. And I get why, like, George Lucas and Steel- Steven Spielberg were so nostalgic for it back in the 70s that they, like, willingly blew up the movie industry to get that nostalgia back. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I am kind of blessed. I was born after the original trilogy, but I was there for the 97 special editions. That's kind of really when I first got into Star Wars. Um, and I was able to see A New Hope for the first time ever on big screen. Oh, I did no, end up, that's so not fair. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, did get to, I did get to see Empire and Jedi when they were released in special edition theaters. But after I saw A New Hope, I immediately went and rented <sighs> Empire Strikes Back and I showed yeah, the Jedi to watch at home. Um <laughs> But yeah, so I, I consider myself lucky. And it's also, I know people don't like any of the special editions, but the pre-prequel special editions don't have Hayden Christensen. Yeah. Don't ha- it has the old, um, what's it called? Emperor in Empire Strikes. Like, that's the one that's crystallized into my mind because yeah. I also own the VHS. So like, when I think of A New Hope and stuff and people tell me all these changes, like McClunky, <laughs> like coming out of Greedo's, like that has no bearing on me because I've never... That's not what I've seen. It's yeah. kind of what I have to watch now because it's on Disney Plus. Yeah. Um, yeah, I technically also didn't see the first Harry Potter. I just think I missed it. And then I kind of got into it in between one and two. And then I watched them all from there on out. And on terms of the Marvel stuff, like everyone knows about like the Endgame and Spider-Man stuff. But I think Age of Ultron, which is generally considered mid to lower tier Marvel stuff, I went and saw that opening day and the crowd was just so fucking hot. It's like a wrestling match. Like if the crowd is really lively, it kind of gets you sucked up into it too. So when everyone's laughing at all of Tony's jokes or like freaking out about this, that or another action sequence, it does kind of raise the blood uh, a little bit and it kind of gets you a little more into it. So um, that's partially probably why I'm a little higher on the Marvel films than just about everyone else. I have seen them with a group of people who are fucking nerds and who probably suck otherwise, <laughs> but it does uh, raise the excitement quite a bit. Yeah. See, it's funny you say that because um, I we went and saw, Connor and I went and saw a movie called Limbo and it's really brilliant and and it, um, if, if you can get access to it, I suggest everybody watches it and it, it's about um, refugees brought to, Syrian refugees who are brought to Scotland, to, to the, the islands, uh, and uh, while I will defend uh, the dignity and uh, pride of uh, the islands and islands, the islands in particular are a bleak fucking hellhole uh, and if you're from syria a war zone and you end up in the islands uh as this film rightly points out you do have to wonder if you've made a trade up um but it but because there's kind of this like whole weird thing where like british liberals white british libs in particular tend to do this thing where they're like we're gonna put ourselves through this like uh movie this dramatic movie that's about refugees and how awful like we treat the refugees and how much violence our state that we routinely vote for uh like how much violence they we inflict upon refugees and we're gonna watch that as a sort of cathartic thing uh, and then we'll have done our kind of bit of charity and we can go back to just being massive fucking racist so brits love doing that um and this movie i think was kind of 
playing on that because uh, it is set up like that, but then it adds these really cutting bits of humor. Um, and there's this bit where uh, the the two kind of brought in Scottish kind of, uh, I think they're like language instructors, but they're meant to be like the people who are, who are meant to ease the transition for refugees into life in the islands. And that's not a transition you can ease no matter who you are. Um, but they make a joke about how like they're trying to translate, uh, how they're trying to show people how you would speak normally colloquially and and english or in scots and and they talk about how uh saying oh my house was bombed by coalition forces and it's this like incredibly funny moment and it was connor and i laughing our asses off in a like in a theater of dead silent british libs who were like well that's simply not an acceptable joke you can't laugh at that and like it's in the middle of cambridge as well so these are all just like posh cunts (laughs) And that experience of, like, laughing at this joke that is obviously meant to be funny and knowing that it's in opposition to the rest of the audience, like, in in the physical theater with you, like, that was also kind of one of these defining moments where I'm like, maybe maybe movie theaters are great. Like, maybe this should be the experience more often. Uh, I kind of want to ask you what your theater-going preferences are. Like, in terms of, do you like to go alone? Do you like to go with a group? And do you have any place you prefer to sit um oh that's funny actually so i have to sit uh at uh like at like not like for meg ryan and uh when harry met sally reason but like because of the way my <laughs> eyes work i've got a thing called a null point uh and it's the point at which i look at something from that angle and my eyes stop shaking so i can see clearly so i always have to sit at like a 45 degree angle to the well i guess it's more a 30 degree angle to the screen on either side which is a delight for all of the people who go with me and i'm sure they're never annoyed by that um but i also don't go to to, i used to go to the theater alone but don't really do it anymore because it's too pricey um but i go with people and then i make ridiculous demands on where we have to sit in the theater and then make faces at them when they make any noise because i'm a delightful person to be around in public (laughs) Um, I mostly prefer to go alone. I definitely did for a long time. And then with my previous partner, I just went with her. Um, And we had a lot of the same dispositions regarding noise, where to sit, like focusing on the actual movie. So it actually worked. Um, In terms of where I like to sit, um, I like to sit near the back, but not all the way back and center row because, um, you know, knock on wood so far, I have a pretty decent bladder. Though, trust me, as you get older, the incontinence is coming. Um, but also, if I know I'm going into something like Avengers Endgame, which is going to be three hours, I actually alter my liquid intake for the day. Yeah. Um, I'm usually pretty big on a afternoon coffee, but I'll try to skip that. Um, let's say if I'm walking into something that's going to be more than two, two and a half hours. Nice. That's a science. Well done. And then in terms of food, I'm not really a huge like food orderer at theaters, mostly because it's like incredibly expensive mm-hmm. um i do like theater popcorn but i almost never pay for it it's just like if i'm with a group or with my family especially with the like my little nieces um they love you know movie theater popcorn so i get to have some um i used to really love sneaking food into theaters <laughs> when possible um so when i was young like they were like pretty strict about this like if you're coming to see a movie you have to buy food in the theater yeah. um and it's just the hot dogs and nachos and popcorn um, I feel like because the margins have increased on ticket sales so much that they just like don't really give a fuck what you bring into the theater anymore. Um, so I I have brought in like Portillos and Shake Shack <laughs> and like fried chicken sandwiches and Jimmy John's um, and just like no one no one cares anymore. I usually like out of courtesy throw it in my backpack or my jacket, but like like I said back in the day, like in the 1998, if we brought a backpack, they double check to make sure you're not sneaking in food. So 
Uh, <laughs> Before there was 9-11, there was movie theater popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> Look what they took from us. The terrorists did one. Uh, do you like to eat at the theater? I don't. I like I I like the concept of movie theater popcorn. I never like movie theater popcorn in execution. Like it's always like sixteen pounds at twenty dollars, I guess, uh, and shit and cold and drenched in butter that doesn't taste like movie theater butter should. And I am, however, despite describing all of the worst parts of food, movie theater food, I am a partisan of movie theater nachos. Um, mostly because it's the well, like one of the few places in Britain you can actually get jalapenos. Ah. <laughs> So if you get so that, that you can sense. load up and then uh, you have food that doesn't taste uh, like bland hell, bland, salty hell. Um, yeah, those are it. I'm, I'm really into the, what? oh, bugger, what are they called in the US? Uh, I, slash puppies? Ices, Ices. I really love those. Yeah. But like you get those everywhere here at like dessert cafes. So I feel like that's not movie theater anymore. And I also drink a lot of wine when I go to movies. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. That's definitely great. Um, I think it's also as I become an adult and, you know, I was in a relationship for a while, it's more likely we're going to do like a dinner and a movie, yeah. um, which uh, de-emphasizes eating anything at the theater. We either hold out to go eat somewhere nice or eat something beforehand. And then you just want to like sip on a Coke or a slushy while you're watching the movie. So yeah, that's the best uh, way. Uh, let's uh, talk some memorable theater experiences we've had. Um, I'll go first and I'll skip over the two towers because that would be like the fourth time you heard that story. <laughs> um, the first one I want to shout out is Rush Hour. Um, I think it's like a 1998 flick with Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan. Um, my friend uh, Doshi has said this movie is so racist in two totally entirely different directions in terms of the anti-Asian racism and the anti-black racism that it cancels each other out <laughs> and is a perfectly acceptable movie. Um, I always enjoyed that review. Um, but so there's a scene and I guess this is really minor first act spoilers where the bad guys like kidnap the daughter of a Chinese embassy person. Um, and the way it's shot a um, van just drives into screen and then the side door slides open and what happened is the film that was running on the reel, this is back before digital projectors, uh, melted <gasps> on the projector. Oh, my God. Um, but the way it melted, it melted starting from inside once the van door pulls uh, open. So it looked like it was going to be some like really weird transition that was <laughs> happening in the film itself. And then when the screen was just white for like another two minutes, people are like, uh, I think the film melted. Oh, my God. I think that's what that was. Holy fuck. Uh so that one always sticks out. Um, they said we, we could either get a refund or stick around for another hour and they'll restart the film, which I was able to get into. Nice. Um, the next one I want to mention is John Wick 3. Um, again, very minor spoilers for that movie, but there is a extended sequence where John Wick just picks up throwing knives and just starts yeeting people all <laughs> over the place, just throwing knife after knife. And the entire theater was laughing so hard at this like hooting and hollering like it's almost like an audience from an arsenio hall show it was like that level of intensity um i've never seen a theater crack up so much <laughs> and then lastly my gold medal theater experience is when i got to see war for the planet of the apes which is a cool movie i went and saw it on a friday afternoon i skipped out of work or took a half day because i really wanted to see it pretty empty theater but who was sitting right in front of me george fucking <gasps> lucas no way um, he he lives, uh, or he spends part of his time in downtown Chicago. You might have heard they were thinking about building a George Lucas Museum here in Chicago. Um, so I went 
to the theater on Michigan Avenue, and him and his uh, wife were there, and a bodyguard. What the fuck? Um, it was incredible. Holy shit. Um, I obviously didn't approach him or anything like that. I did hear him say he thought the special effects were nice after the movie, because I... <laughs> Uh, when I knew he was in there, like I, after I left the theater, I just kind of lounged around just to see what he'd do, you know, what was going on, uh, just see if I can pick up anything. But that, that was cool. And it's like, I saw a movie with George Lucas, which is just going to be one of those things I remember for the rest of my life. That's amazing. It's also clarifies for me because you've gotten the notes, War for the Planet of the Apes, Prens, George Lucas. And I was really wondering if that was just going to be a drive-by on George Lucas. And that is <laughs> way cooler. God, that's awesome. Holy shit. I'm so jealous. I have a, uh, what about you anything else i know you mentioned uh, the one with the stuffy brits but is there anything else that uh stands out for you um you know what actually okay so there's two so one is um one one is um i saw alien for the first time uh ever in in cinemas Woo. uh in two years ago i think uh yeah because i was still in cambridge at the time yeah so i went and saw that um alien and i had of like I tend to do this thing where if I haven't seen a movie I assume that it's about something insanely wrong um so like oh what was it that I was doing this recently about um oh I can't remember there the, basically there was some movie that I thought was going to be like a really kind of up like action-packed like fast moving fast talking kind of like uh you know kind of big blockbuster thing and then it ended up being basically like the equivalent of like 12 Angry Men. Not to say that 12 Angry Men is not uh, an incredibly tense movie, but there are no guns, there's no car crashes, there's no explosions. Right, right. I do this all the time. I thought Alien was kind of going to be like that. Like, I was thinking Alien was going to be like, uh, well, like Aliens too. Uh, like Aliens, rather, uh, which I later, like, laterally saw. Uh, and so went in and was expecting it to be like Aliens. Uh, <laughs> and it was not. And I was blown away i don't think i've ever like done a 180 on a movie so quickly like going from being kind of skeptical of it and being like this is probably going to be dumb to being like this is probably the best thing i've seen on screen in at forever that one was awesome uh and and that one was that was really fun and the other one is uh so i i used to live in adabra and adabra uh does a lot of we're festival city uh they they do a lot of festivals one of them is uh the edinburgh international film festival uh and uh connor my partner is a journalist so he can occasionally wrangle tickets to things uh he's a legal journalist to clarify there's no cinema element to this but he can occasionally wrangle tickets to like the movies or the lord you know the play a play or whatever uh for free and we went and saw this movie it was a the scottish premiere of uh, a movie that was i think it was then called boys in the wood it is now called Get Duked, um, but it is about a bunch of like Scottish boys who are doing their Duke of Edinburgh, which is like, uh, uh, think of it as like if if teenagers in America were like forced to do Cub Scouts, um, and you know they tend to do like a kind of overnight hiking thing, uh, and it's a basic, it's basically these these guys they're from uh like various kind of uh, echelons, it, like internal echelons of working class Scottish culture uh, in Glasgow. They go into the Highlands and uh they are chased by Eddie Izzard, who is playing uh, an aristocrat who they nickname uh the Duke of Edinburgh. Uh, that is Prince Philip. 
uh, now dead, uh, and uh, they nickname him the the Duke of Edinburgh, and they're getting chased through the Highlands as he's like gunning them down. Uh, and it's this, it's this like I don't think I expected it to be quite as funny as it is because there there is this kind of like cultural phenomenon of Scottish cringe, uh, best epitomized I think right now by like Outlander, which is like uh, is basically like Scottish people um, embarrassing themselves in public because they know Americans, dumb Americans, will pay them a lot of money to do it. Um, and I was really worried that that movie was going to be that, um, and it was like set up in the massive Edinburgh Festival Theatre, which is this big, beautiful, ornate theatre. And it's got like, uh, you know, the massive screen and they were doing the whole, like, you know, the whole proper premiere shit. They were taking questions. It was everybody was dressed in the nines. And I was like, oh God, this is going to be like Outlander meets Braveheart meets everybody wearing Adidas because they're trying to be like hip and trendy. And it was the funniest shit I've ever seen. And everybody was dying. And there was this like electricity in the air as we were all kind of like spilling out of the theater at the end of it where where it was like this is like the next train spotting and then it never made it really that far but it is still the best movie about scotland i've ever seen and i still it is now called get duked and everyone should see it but that like electricity in the air after that i will be chasing that high forever I'm going to start this recap with a mea culpa, even though I already apologized for this, and this will be a couple months stale. I bagged on The Rings of Power Episode 5 for the new Minorian ship blowing up via C4 when there was actually wooden oil discussed <laughs> in an earlier scene. So before we get into Middle Earth Explosives 101 today, I feel like I should at least get that out. Grima Wormtongue, who has not seen The Rings of Power, tells us of the one weakness in the Deeping Wall. A single drain, a culvert where the wall is weak. This is where Sauron means to break them. How? How can fire undo stone? What kind of device could bring down the wall? The first time I heard this, I thought Grima was saying fire-induced stone, not fire-undo stone, just to keep up the runner of me having really bad hearing. <laughs> I made sense of it in the time, though, because Saruman's bomb does require stone to be induced by fire to go kablooey. Which Grima apparently doesn't know, as Saruman has to grab Wormtongue's candle so he doesn't actually blow the roof off of Orthanc. Grima's also apparently ignorant of Isengard's industrious activity while he was away at Theoden's court. He presses Saruman that even if the wall is breached, they do not have enough force to take the castle from Theoden. They need more men. I wish I could say that like the Death Star commander from Return of the Jedi, <laughs> but alas. Saruman has something better. Tens of thousands of Urukai. He leads Grima onto a balcony looking down on legions of fighting Isengarders, armed and armored and ready to march. A really stunning downshot on a scale that was hardly seen on film by 2002. Time for this white wizard to rally his troops, and you'd be a fool to think I wasn't going to give you this Christopher Lee speech. <laughs> a new power is rising. Its victory 
is at hand! This night, the land will be stained with the blood of Rohan! March to hell's deep! Leave none alive! The Uruk's march to war does not go unnoticed. From the hills of the nearby Fangorn Forest, and upon the shoulders of the ant who gives the forest its name, Mary and Pip see the dark plumes of smoke rising off in the distance. Treebeard lets them know it's always like that these days. The daily smog alerts out of Isengard give Los Angeles a run for its money. Not smog, smog. <laughs> but it's not the smoke that gives our hobbits pause, but the column of soldiers pouring out. The war has started, laments Mary. Meanwhile, Aragorn is still on his Splash Mountain shit, the part of the ride after the big drop where, you just coast, where you're just coasting along the lazy river. He eventually washes up on nearby shores with flashing visions of Arwen back in Rivendell. Arwen uses her Professor X powers to give him a telepathic kiss of life in a shot that reminds me of Liza Minnelli and Michael York kissing in Cabaret. <laughs> And I guess everyone's just lining up to kiss Viggo Mortensen, which, fair, as his horse comes by next and plants a big sloppy one on Aragorn. This is how my cat Chini wakes me up most mornings. As Aragorn gets his ass a horse, we continue our check-in around Middle-earth, this time with Arwen and her father Elrond, who was probably contractually obligated to appear in all three films. He wants Arwen to join Rivendell crew team and go sailing out in the west, but Arwen is still invested in waiting around for her in her hometown for her dirtbag boyfriend. Elrond takes his daughter's hands, the warmth slowly bleeding out of her. Just as the days wane, so too does Arwen. If Sauron is defeated and Aragorn made king and all that you hope for comes true, you will still have to taste the bitterness of mortality. Whether by the sword or the slow decay of time, Aragorn will die. And there will be no comfort for you, no comfort to ease the pain of his passing. He will come to death, an image of the splendor of the kings of men in glory, undimmed before the breaking of the world. Eventually, Elrond's peer pressure does the trick, and Arwen agrees to leave for love of her father. We last see her looking up at Dad, bathed in lamplight, in a procession of elves going west. This whole bit gives me the same vibes as the Stairway to Heaven poster I had hanging on my dorm room wall, with a crone holding a lamp next to the final verse of the song. We continue the handoff methodology of this interstitial as Arwen and Elrond lead us into Elrond and Galadriel doing the ancient elvish magic of FaceTime. 
Kate Blanchett, too, I assume, was contractually required to be in this film, so she hops onto the call to give us the halftime report. The power of the enemy is growing. Sauron will use his puppet Saruman to destroy the people of Rohan. Isengard has been unleashed. The Eye of Sauron now turns to Gondor, the last free kingdom of men. His war on this country will come swiftly. He senses the ring is close. The strength of the ring bearer is failing. In his heart, Frodo begins to understand. The quest will claim his life. After recapping the events in Rohan, Galadriel's eye turned towards Gondor, where she sets the stage for the Faramir scenes coming up next. Though the young captain of Gondor poses a threat for now, her focus is on Frodo and the, and the coming understanding within him. He's gonna fucking die. <laughs> they all knew this, even if they left it unspoken. Same as the risk that the ring would find its way back to the hands of minds more easily corrupted. We catch a glimpse of Mordor, completing our check-in around the map as wraiths on wings circle the fortress of Barak-dur, which leaves Elrond and the audience with one last question to ponder. The time of the elves is over. Do we leave Middle-earth to its fate? Do we let them stand alone? So today we're talking about the Two Towers intermission, and I actually really enjoy this. I love when stories take a second to zoom out on all its threads. We check in on every plot here. Rohan, Merry and Pippin, Frodo and Sam, with peeks at the enemy and Isengard and Mordor. It feels like the deep breath before the plunge, as Gandalf later puts it. And with one of the most wonderful battle sequences of all time coming up, I get the urge to pause and appraise the situation. There's a coherence of emotion here. Despair, fear, sacrifice. Things look bleak. Hell, I don't know if they ever look bleaker in the entire trilogy. Men are captured in a pincer attack, our hobbit pals have been taken captive, Aragorn is busy making out with a horse, and Isengard has been unleashed. We wallow in hopelessness a little bit, so that in an hour or so when Sam gives his incredible monologue, we feel a great rush, a release, a literal climax. To that end, there's some good baton passing between these scenes. We start in Isengard, which then connects us to Merry and Pippin and Fangorn, watching the armies pour out. Aragorn's dreamlike water tube routine is undercut <laughs> with Arwen, setting up her and Elrond sharing some screen time. And when Arwen is done, we transition to Elrond and Galadriel. Also, where you can play to the production strength, like the cast, you give Lee, Weaving, and Blanchett monologues and narration and audio overlays so that I can just sit here and eat them up. Yep, yep. Um, I'm also kind of giggling a bit because I was like, okay... And this is the first kind of episode we're recording after the Rings of Power. I'm going to be way more like lenient towards the Peter Jackson films than I was beforehand. And it's going to be so obvious that there's a before and after to, to this because I'm just going to be really fucking nice. And then I was reminded that 
like it, it's not a scene that we're covering in this at all in this episode but it is coming up and it's that stupid faramir table scene where he's pointing at a map it is literally the map from the books as well so you kind of have to give it to them in some ways see i'm lenient now uh but it's the dumbest shit i've ever seen and i hated it and i hated it so much and i was like you know it doesn't matter if it's in the extended edition or the theatrical edition because i think they add like 30 seconds in the extended edition it's dumb and a bad edition uh and then the rings of power happened and we saw those map scenes and i'm like oh my god that map scene is now perfect um but it's also i think the rings of power in particular has really clarified for me i was never i'd never had a particularly strong feeling one way or another on the concept of like these intermission scenes um I don't mind them. I always like seeing uh, Kate Blanchett in particular. Uh, I always like seeing her just kind of choose scenery. That's fine for me. Um, but I was never like, oh, I need to defend or uh, like uh, insult these one way or the other. And now I'm like, these are absolutely necessary. <laughs> and, and I think like having now seen a, a, a TV series where it, like 10 hours of alleged plot uh, happens without a chance to like, like you say, marinate in the kind of panic and and the the tension and the fear. Um, I have never been more of a defender of these kind of moments of like quote unquote filler, and um, where you are just like allowing the audience to sit and be like, oh god, man, everything is really bad, isn't it? And I think those like kind of moments, you know, it's like the Miyazaki thing where where Miyazaki says like, um. He always has to have a moment in, in his films to to just sit and watch the grass blow um, because the, the moments in which you sit and watch the, the grass blow and the breeze are the moments in which like life itself is actually really occurring. Those are the moments in which you, you kind of feel like either the kind of profundity of life or the profundity of your problems because you can't just sit and appreci- appreciate the, the grass growing or blowing rather um, and this is kind of like that um obviously with a little bit ratcheted up tension there's like the family drama element there's the soap element there's the whatever the fuck uh aragorn is doing i <laughs> teach their own um we shan't yuck his yum um but like letting all of that stuff kind of stew without it being done with like literal actual scenes of violence and blood and gore or people screaming and crying at one another. Well, I guess Arwen and Arwen are kind of crying at one another. But, it like, there is actually, like, a huge, like, narrative importance of those things. And, you know, I think if we'd recorded this before Rings of Power, I may have not seen it as clearly. And now I totally get it. Now I'm like, right, this is why these exist. And, man, I'm so glad they do exist. Yeah. And like we said, it's also halfway through the entire series. Um, so it's a good spot to pause. And it's just, it's going to make everything that comes after just work a little better. I think there is just a little bit of, there's probably some hand-holding in here just to remind everyone everything that's going on, um, especially as they're kind of setting up a new situation in Gondor, which is really being introduced in the following scene. Um, so it's like, don't forget about all this, but now we have to focus on Frodo for a little while, the least interesting part of the story. Um, <laughs> now that's just a diss on Frodo. I'm not serious about that. I am. But yeah, I think that's... <laughs> Um, I think that's cool. And like I said, also, it's a great time to take a bathroom break if you need to without having to slow down the film. Um, You have plenty of time, though you're really missing out on some of the voice performances here. So I guess I'm glad the Rings of Power got us discussing demolition tactics in Middle-earth. Saruman doesn't have access to C4, but it does seem like he invented gunpowder for Middle-earth. It seems this is called Fire of Orthanc or Blasting Fire. Just some random information. The first bombs in our real history, as we understand bombs, probably date back to the 13th century China. Uh, Cast iron shells, including gunpowder, which is basically what we see Saruman using here. 
Bombs may have been used by Saruman in the Ramas Ekor when sieging Gondor, which could at least create a through line to where Saruman conjured up such a device. Of course, I'm more than willing to accept that one of the wizards coming up with some new devilry on their own, it perfectly fits in the story with me. Yeah, um, there's also a bit where, um, and, and this is this is my like, uh, you know, I'm, I have now rescinded all of my chat about the mechanics of lore uh, on the basis of the rings of power. I no longer think this is an important discussion. However, it's still my white whale um, because there's a uh, Boromir in the books um, at the Council of Elrond describes how uh, before the nine, well, in order to stop the nine passing, they don't know it's the nine, but in order to stop the nine passing, the last bridge, the great bridge of Osgiliath and getting access to the rest of Middle-earth from from Athelion and Mordor to the east, um, the Boromir and Faramir and and their their kind of uh, troops, their their battalions behind them, uh, literally blow up the bridge um, at Osgiliath, and and like right, generally an innocuous statement. Contextually, fascinating because we've just seen uh, it in 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 the context of the books, right? We've just seen uh, uh, Elrond and Glorfindel working together with Gandalf to um, destroy a dam to send water flowing down the fords of Brienne to to help uh, Fro- uh, to help Frodo and Glorfindel, mostly for Frodo to escape the nine. Uh, and and when they are kind of discussing the mechanics of this, as kind of o- they obliquely do. Um, the the discussion centers on this issue of it seems like magic, but it's not really magic. Um, it was actually just a clever bit of engineering, um, and and it it reads as Tolkien kind of trying to hand wave away the kind of magical explosive element of, of that, and that's the elves doing it. But then it immediately jumps in like I think the next chapter, the chapter after, um, to Boromir just offhandedly being like, "Yeah, we blew up a bridge," and it's like, well, if the elves didn't have this power to do that in the same way. They had to do a little bit of like clever civil engineering as the elves are wont to do. Um, how were the men able to blow something up? Um, and I and my favorite answer is, well, Gandalf, of course, because uh, Gandalf has fireworks. Uh, and so Gandalf took the fireworks th- that are quite nice little treats for kids in, in the Shire and handed it to the men and they were like, we're going to blow shit up. Um, but it is funny that of all of the things for there to be this through line um, from literally geographically from... Uh, even the even the dwarves of Arad Luin, uh, all the way you know in the far northwest to uh, you know to the men of Gondor in the in the far southeast, um, everyone has gunpowder apparently, and everybody's blowing shit up. And of all of the things to be the commonality <laughs> for all of the civilizations of Middle Earth, I guess this has to be it. <laughs> That's great. I actually did not know we'd get this much like discussion out of like demolition and explosive <laughs> tactics in Middle Earth. That's pretty great. <laughs> Uh, I love the mind design here for the bomb. It reminds me out of something from like an old Bond film or maybe even a Zelda game. They look like also mines from Metal Gear Solid 2 when Raiden has to swim in the lower levels to save EE. And congrats to everyone who understands that reference. So this scene is always really funny to me, right? Because um, this is the scene, uh, the scene, I should say, uh, in which I think Christopher Lee justifies himself as Saruman versus anyone else. Um, and this is a really long throwback to, uh, I think, like episode eight of of this podcast when I laid down uh, the thesis, thesis, please, uh, that um, I think John Noble should have been Saruman instead and Christopher Lee should have been Denethor. Um, and I think if those two had swapped, it would have been uh, 100% perfect, no notes, even more so than it is now for me. Um, but... I think this is the scene that shows that I don't think that that could have entirely worked because I don't think John Noble could have delivered this with quite the level of blood curdling 
mouth-frothing Tory, British Tory, imperialist bloodlust that Christopher Lee gives. And and of course, Christopher Lee has the, the home court benefit in that he isn't a bloodthirsty imperialist or was a bloodthirsty imperialist, may he rest in peace, uh, and, and, and definitely does have that kind of hard Tory edge of just kind of wanting to colonize the world and make all of the like third worlders shut the fuck up forever. And, and because he has that innate to him and because those are the things he believes in, he's able to put that into the character of, of Sour Man so perfectly. And there is this like horrifying authenticity to it that makes this scene brilliant. And if you compare it to, well, we'll compare it to something else in about a minute, but if you compare it to some of the other scenes where they have these kind of, um, you know, stoic, massive villain figures, none of them play it quite as well as, as Christopher Lee does. Galadriel mentions that Sauron will use Saruman as a puppet, which the movies don't really go too far into how Saruman kind of has his own agenda, but hey, I'll take the nod to it here. I guess when you don't plan on doing much with Saruman in Return of the King, you can just get by without it. (laughs) The emptying of Isengard is also harrowing, a force of size we have not yet seen in the films and perhaps in cinema period. I think it's expertly done to have Merry and Pippin spy it from a distance, just to give you a sense of scale and the visual of a black plague pouring out of Isengard to poison the land. And I also love the crunch, crunch, crunch of their boots and mail. It's just exquisite foley work. Yeah, and, and this is this is the point where we have to compare because two movies came out uh, in this year that had uh, almost identical scenes uh, in wildly different contexts. Well, maybe not, uh, depending on how much you trust George Lucas to tell the story he actually is trying to tell. Um, one of them is The Two Towers, <laughs> and the other is Attack of the Clones. Uh, and both of them feature men or groups of men looking down from a high, uh, like from a tall uh, kind of platform uh, onto these massive armies of let's uh, nicely call them uh, horrifying abominations, whether it's the like monstrous, ethically monstrous issue of the clones or the ethically monstrous issue of the Arakai. It's these abomination armies um, that these men are, you know, delivering these speeches to and then effectively saying to war, to war. And, the Two Towers, of course, wins in every regard in a straight competition between these two scenes. And it's because of the things you're pointing out. It's the Foley work. It's the sound of the mail working, the, the chain mail moving. And it's there's this like texture to it and this like, and not sensuality in like the like sexual sense, but like sensuality of that like it is literally going for all five of your senses in this scene. And you can like almost feel the dirt under your fingernails or, or smell the blood and the shit and the BO and the mud as they're walking and your ears are ringing. And you compare it to the scene in Attack of the Clones where uh, they're all marching into the the uh, admittedly quite cool looking uh, ships, the, the, the battleships. Uh, and it's all like it feels like a video game cutscene and not just because of the CG, the overt use of CG, but because there's not that same level of thought to like the texture of the scene. And it, and this is, I think, this is such a perfect example of these moments in which The Lord of the Rings as a film series gets cinema so well. And it gets that you have to have all thrusters firing and every single one of your senses has to be engaged, even if they can't literally, because it's not like Disney's 4D, they still have to engage your senses somehow. And this is one of the scenes where they're really going all out for it and and just a brilliant, brilliant effect. Yeah, I love what you're saying about the sensory stuff because the Urukai marching with all that chain armor and mail, it 
feels heavy, like I myself am wearing it and it's weighing me down. And that's in line with the tone of these scenes kind of being downers anyways. And when you juxtapose that against the general like weightlessness of a lot of the CGI in the Star Wars prequels and Attack of the Cone specifically, like, oh, that's such a good juxtaposition. Um, sorry, George Lucas, uh, Peter Jackson wins this round. Yeah. And if you think about it, Yoda really is just Saruman. <laughs> I mean, he fights Saruman, so um, <laughs> I don't have much substantive to say about the Elrond Arwen stuff. It mostly serves as a reminder and use of the actors as well as the mortality of the elves. I love doing these scenes in nighttime. It gives the impression the light of the elves is fading, that it is twilight for them. I like the green sheen over everything, too. I also enjoy the shots of the future we get here, of Aragorn dying and Arwen mourning him. I love the gray backdrop of Minas Tirith behind her. I love the close-up shot on her veil. I love the vibe shots of a lonely figure walking in the woods, the trees all stripped of leaves and life. Yeah, sure, Arwen may not have much characterization here, but we do see Aragorn dead, so the scene isn't all bad. Is it, Emily? <laughs> yep. <laughs> it, it wins for me on that one. Um, yeah, you know what? And, and again, sorry, I'm just going to be really fucking bitter and mean about the Rings of Power for like probably the next two episodes we do. But but compare this. Like, you're right. Like, Arwen doesn't get much characterization here. But the rest of the story gets a huge amount. The rest of the story and the rest of the world gets a huge amount of characterization through what they're doing here. Um, Arwen wandering through the trees, that is a direct lift from her actual canonical death uh, in in the Lord of the Rings appendices after Aragorn dies at age 210. Um, Arwen departs, Gondor departs Minas Tirith um, because she's never really taken it in as her as her home. Um, and she goes and she wanders uh, the empty Rivendell uh, in Ladris uh, and then goes up to Lothorian and dies. Uh, and she dies alone uh, in, in, uh, beneath the trees. Uh, and it is this incredibly sad imagery. But that is what Elrond is predicting there in this flash forward is actually what happens to her. And, and I think there, and then you see, like you point out, Minas Tirith and Osgiliath in the background. And, and you know, is the city built anew? And there's this vision of all of the mourners. And this vision of, um, it brings back the subjectivity, right? Because like, to us, the way that the film is portraying it, it is, it is sad. It is desperately sad. And that's because Elrond is pointing out that death is a sad thing. Um, and no one knows this better than Elrond. But there's also some kind of ambiguity in there because not not only is it sad, yes, that, that Aragorn has died, haha, sucks to suck. But there's also this vision <laughs> of kind of happiness and hope at the edges of it, which is look at Gondor built anew. The, the, the Minas Tirith and the Osgiliath that we see in the background of the scene does not look like the emptied and dead and mm -hmm. broken and Minas Tirith and Osgiliath that we see in the films in in quote unquote present day, it is a revitalized Gondor, and and there are people there who are mourning Aragorn, which means he wasn't usurped, um, and he wasn't killed, and and he died, uh, you know, proudly as a king should, and people have come to mourn him, and there are people who are still, uh, uh, you know, around Arwen, and and Arwen has made it that long, she's made it long enough to to see him die, and isn't that in itself this kind of privilege and luxury, and 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 the film introduces that ambiguity, and in introducing either incidentally or purposely that ambiguity by giving us all these details, they help to flesh out the world so much and then compare it to Rings of Power. Ha ha ha, ha ha ha. Yeah, no, that's great. I didn't put together that that kind of is a vision of the future where Arwen does die. Um, and it's very smart to sneak that imagery in here when we're going to talk about Elrond's like premonition or his foresight in a little bit. Um, yeah, that's really well done. And like you said, this is 
This is also the win scenario, which adds a level of tragedy to it. I know there's a lot of hope on the margins, like you said, but this is what winning looks like in the end for Arwen. Um, so I think it's 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 bittersweet in a way because it's like great, but also sad at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, it adds some depth that I didn't even realize, but you're absolutely right in calling out that this is like greatness at the margins. That's just kind of, it has the veil of death over it because that's what the specific topic at hand is. And I'm always wary of picking out phrasing to discuss because my co-host is quite good at explaining how they mangle <laughs> Tolkien's words, but I really like the lines given Elrond and Weaving's delivery of them. I can honestly do ASMR to this. And there will be no comfort for you, no comfort to ease the pain of his passing. He will come to death, an image of the splendor of kings, of men in glory, undimmed before the breaking of the world. But you, my daughter, you will linger on in darkness and in doubt as nightfall in winter that comes without a star. Here you will dwell, bound to your grief, under the fading trees, until all the world has changed and the long years of your life are utterly spent. Sometimes it's just about how the sound of the words coming out of an actor's mouth can really sell something, and it gets at the ultimate question. Is there still hope, or is it only death and decay that remains? Yeah. And and uh, I, like I think it's I think it's a lovely bit. I think it's nice to include as well because it gets at one of these things that Tolkien introduces in his writing, but um, never fully kind of resolves. Not that he has to resolve it, but I think he himself also kind of failed to resolve it personally. Um, which is this question of is death itself a gift? Uh, Tolkien names it a gift. It is the gift of men. It is the gift that God Eru Iluvatar uh, gives unto men. Uh, is the ability to die and to pass on beyond quite literally this mortal co- mortal coil to pass on behind beyond the fate of of Artha. Um, but. But is death itself actually a gift? And and I think Elrond in particular is such an interesting vector for this question because Elrond half elven has the choice of whether or not to take mm. the doom of men. Um and and not just being Elrond half elven, but Elrond, whose twin brother Elros, makes the other choice. He picks the other path and Elros dies and and Elrond has to live thousands of years without his twin brother. Um and and there's a sort of an immense sadness to it. And then um Elrond's daughter makes that choice too and and chooses the path that Elrond uh, himself does not like. Um, And I think there's kind of something interesting here, which is is the question of like, are the elves maybe a bit arrogant in how they think of death? And do they think of it as a sort of weakness? And and I think Elrond in particular, um, at least in the movies, certainly sees it as a weakness. And and I think that's a flaw of his. Um, And I think, you know, Arwen doesn't articulate it at all and we'll get into eventually why i hate how arwen articulates her decision to stay because i think it's just some psychopathic misogynist shit um but you know arwen could have articulated the answer to to elrond's uh you know kind of uh, abject pessimism with but isn't isn't it a gift? Is it not a gift to be able to move beyond? And isn't it a gift to be able to see a culmination and a sort of resolution to your life? And and to know that you don't, whether it is in pain or if it is in pleasure, it does not have to go forever. And isn't there a sweetness to this sort of, to, to lack, to, you know, that, that word that Tolkien loves to use himself, you know, this question of lack. Um, 
And and isn't there something that makes the world all the sweeter because it is finite? Um, and, and Elrond, of course, uh, kind of having that elvish arrogance of his, um, doesn't quite think of it in terms of that. And all he thinks of is, well, I want my daughter um, to be with me. You know what? It's like Andor. Um, it, it's like the, 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 the conversation between Marva and, and Andor uh, and Cashin in Andor. Um, and, and Cashin is begging Marva to come with him because, you know, he couldn't he wouldn't, he'd go crazy if he didn't know that she was safe and, and, and he didn't know that he could protect her. And Marva hits back at him, Fiona Shaw nailing it. Um, that's just love. Um, and that's just what love is. And, and, um, this is, that is a, that is a kind of analog to this conversation that's happening here. And Arwen is not kind of, um, adept enough, uh, as a, as a character in this to, to fire back. Well, yes, but that's what love is. And love necessarily includes, uh, some element of loss to it. But, but that is kind of the question that that's happening here. And, and Elrond and his hubris doesn't really see that uh, movie Elrond and his hubris doesn't really see that Narwin doesn't really articulate a kind of coherent position against it but what a great thing for a movie to bring in and 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 uh I, I can't believe that a movie was able to do this without really actually having to think too hard about it or shine a spotlight on it uh in the year of our lord 2002 <laughs> oh I love that I had not considered that half elven approach to it so um that adds a whole other layer to this so I really like that even more now best intermission ever <laughs> As Arwen agrees to go west, Galadriel's narration comes in. In fact, it's the same narration from the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring, but just the cinder inside, not the common tongue translation. But yes, it is the world has changed and it smells verse. We got to open up the entire trilogy. Now here at the middle of all things, it feels appropriate to bring Galadriel back in since the story is basically framed from her point of view. Galadriel is theoretically talking to Elrond, but he is just a listener here, making an extremely concerned face at the camera, perhaps the most concerned any <laughs> elf or man has ever been. Feel the concern. And Elrond is literally just sitting his ass down and listening to women, so we gotta respect that. <laughs> woke king. Um, no, not woke king. He never took the title of king. Woke lord. Uh, yeah. Um, this was kind of fun for me to return to after months of not really having concertedly thought about these films in a, in a serious way. Um, and, uh, in our, in our own intermission, uh, in programming, uh, I, for the rings of power, God, why? Um, I went and saw Brian Cox, uh, do a, a live Q&A at my local indie theater, uh, and, uh, He's a fascinating guy, really, really whip smart guy. Um, and um, one of the things he was talking about was, was this issue of um, what is an actor's role in a story? Um, and, and he came down on the side of actors are good at their job and actors are doing their job well when they know when to sit back and tell the story. Um, and, and he kind of juxtaposed that against acting, like capital A acting. And what he was basically saying is sometimes you just, you as an actor need to just deliver 10 lines because they tell the story for what the story is and they don't say anything specific about your character and they don't have room for you to do your sort of characteristic idiosyncrasies and they don't have room for you to be the center stage. You have to know when to make the story center stage. Um, and, and thinking about that and, and thinking about this idea of putting the story above putting storytelling above acting is is really fascinating and i and i think in this series of films in particular you really get a sense that all of the actors know that occasionally they just have to step back from the character and let them let themselves be a vessel for the story and this is such a good example of that you know Kate Blanchett yeah she's doing kind of the gladrial kind of 
you know, idiosyncrasy. She's doing the, the Galadriel affect, but she's delivering exposition. And Elrond is not, you know, Hugo Weaving is not actually saying anything really. Um, but by the look on his face, that is also delivering exposition. And that is, you know, they're not trying to dominate the scene and they're not trying to make it clear that in this moment, Elrond would have, you know, been chewing on his lip because he's an anxious person. They they know what they need to do is tell the story and everything else is kind of secondary to that. And looking at it through that lens, you also really get a sense of how um, narratively kind of sound and important these scenes are. Galadriel provides a military reality check. Sauron is being used to attack the kingdoms of men from the West. Sauron instead gets to be the pincer from the East. She describes Gondor as the last free kingdom of Middle-earth, which I wasn't exactly sure what the distinction is between Gondor and Rohan there, especially since Gondor is the one that doesn't have a king. Well, according to some I know, also it doesn't need a king. It does not. That is correct. Um, Republican Gondor now. Um, yeah, so uh, we'll call Gond- We'll call Rohan, rather, the Riddermark, a vassal state-ish. Uh, like, it gets its legitimacy from Gondor. Um, and I originally, I was really mad at this line. Like, I, well, I say originally, for the past 100 times I've watched this movie, I was really mad at this line. And now I'm kind of objectively in favor of it because I like that it basically throws Rohan into question politically. And I hadn't really thought about it before. And it was probably because I was being a bit uncharitable to these movies. Um, but I do actually like this idea that like the heart of moral goodness, the heart of moral and political goodness in Middle Earth, uh, where the men are concerned, exists in Gondor, because it means the heart of that is Denethor. So fuck the haters. Uh, would that also possibly be in line with this coming from Galadriel's point of view, that she would consider Gondor as such and kind of just ignore Rohan in all this? Yeah, or yeah. just think oh, of it as time. a vassal state? Yeah. You know what? It's actually really interesting because um, if the Rings of Power has done one thing for me, it has made me massively less sympathetic to Galadriel as a character, uh, which I didn't think was possible, but there it is. Um, and, and I think there is an element of like Galadriel's elitism um, is intense. Um, and I don't think, you know, it's not just Rohan that's out there dale the land of dale mm-hmm. <laughs> bard's kingdom is still out there and for all intents and purposes they are also good guys and they are also free men um, and so she's just ignored them she's basically ignored the peasants in favor of only looking at the kind of pseudo elvish aristocracy and classic galadriel really i like how galadriel focuses in on the danger of men though consistent with this trilogy's telling Yes, the enemy is orcs and goblins and wizards and a flaming freaking eye, but often the danger comes from ourselves, from other people, not too different from us. The ring bearer being captured by the rangers of Gondor puts the fate of the quest on the edge of a knife. All it takes is one person to seize the ring, so close to Mordor, for the entire gambit to be shot. Gladriel makes literal what the story has been telling us all along. Frodo gonna die. I won't say I love them telling us this, it feels more impactful when it's Frodo coming to terms with it, uh, with there not being a return trip. But I don't think it's without weight. As Galadriel says, you have foreseen this. They knew the risk they were putting on him and the likely o- outcome. There is a level tr- of tragedy to it all. We get some more vibe shots here too, namely the ring, ring spinning in the air, which is a slowed down version of Frodo losing grip of the ring in The Prancing Pony. Sometimes you just got to show the ring spinning. It's a good trick. <laughs> The time of the elves is over, so the question for our two elvish leaders is simple. Do we leave men to this calamity, or do we stay and fight? I imagine Emily and I will clash over the elven involvement in Helm's Deep, though we can probably save that discussion for when we get to Haldir's arrival. 
So since there's no book chapter to correspond to this film's intermission, we're going to do something really different and give a shout out to all of our patrons who got Elven names. As you may have been aware, we recorded a lot of our two or couple Two Towers episodes before we instituted this new Patreon bonus, so our previous Two Towers episodes do not have any Patreon names listed at the end. So in kind of apology for all that, we're going to use this space to thank all our patrons we have gov- given Elvish names. As a reminder, what we do is if you are a patron member at the 5 and $10 level, we will assign you a name. Well, Emily will assign you a name or give you some options. And then we will read all our $10 patron names on air every episode, which we hope to do going forward. And then we are alternating reading off various $5 patrons. So, uh, starting with our $10 patrons, our Hobbit in Arms, we'd like to first thank Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Aranwo Minyatar. And Maddie Hu, a.k.a. Ithranor of Kolkarthad. Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, Guardian of Kirith Ungol. Lothamana Palinka, a.k.a. Johnny Flores Jr. Ayuilendele? Ooh. <laughs> uh, you want to do that one? Sorry. Yeah. Ayuilendele, a.k.a. Haley Glyphs. Salquendil, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. Laikwamelme, a.k.a. Zach Newman. Hi, Zach. <laughs> moving, moving on to our Guards of the Citadel, Sean the Rascal of Rivendell. <laughs> Sorry, every time I laugh at this. <laughs> Bele Gamansir of Dorloth, a.k.a. Gabagool. Elenoma of Vinhatole, a.k.a. Elise. Bravo of the Cats on Deal, a.k.a. Scott Rothman. Farrowin, a.k.a. Zoe. Rosorno of Aranor, a.k.a. Lenny Not Dead. Elenistare Robinde, a.k.a. Tara. <laughs> Meow and Deal <laughs> of Erasto, <laughs> a.k.a. My- Connor, my Connor, Connor Meaton. You're Connor, my I Connor. love that. You're, like you're Sam, I love it. <laughs> Morthorian Raskan Abaridas, a.k.a. Ethan. Ananor of Glanemen, a.k.a. Evan. Raveliel of Erebost, a.k.a. Ariel. Ariel, sorry. <laughs> this one's easy. Bronwyn. Bronwyn, I've heard that one. <laughs> do you want me Badi to do that Balor- one? Yeah, yeah, you do this one. <laughs> Bathi Balor O'Galiri, <laughs> Daniel from Sport. <laughs> I, I love that one so much. Adonian o Ared Harrisir, aka Stacy O'Neill. Alastariel of the La Salia, aka Maddie K. Ray. Idhirian Hunoril, aka Wilf. <laughs> and of course, Ethraglier Andratheon, aka Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to our Patreon, patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where you'll get early access to episodes and special bonus content, including Patreon exclusive episodes. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, a.k.a. J.R. Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, also fantasizing, like Elrond, about Aragorn's death. 
<laughs> toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethraglier and Drethion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.